Hello, Michael Midas here. Welcome to the Mysterious Bluffs. If you listened to the last episode, Becky's Thing for Serial Killers, the story has one more side to it. Now, this side happened a few years after Becky opened her coffee shop. Business was great. There were plenty of customers and a great team of servers. But the coffee shop did well for another reason. The infamous night that serial killer Slippery William served there, then murdered Stacy, the waitress he'd replaced. Locals were fascinated the elusive killer had paid a visit to the coffee shop. Along with the fascination came bizarre claims that demons were shaking the tables, or if you eat on the patio at night, you might hear Stacy scream in the distance. How about the poltergeist in the toaster oven? And on a washroom wall, someone wrote, Stacy is alive. Her tragic death became a legend. And not just locally. About a year after the terrifying event, a documentary about Slippery William came out. Stacy's story was featured in it because of her role in the high-rotation commercial for Murphy's Muffler. According to the documentary, Stacy was a -a one-of-a-kind young starlet on a quest for fame and fortune. The interview with her mother was, to say the least, uplifting. She tearfully praised Stacy's devotion to the craft of acting and her courage to fight for a place in a man's world. She also mentioned that when Stacy walked into a room, she was always the brightest light. This wasn't the jealous mother who called Stacy a lousy actor. What a difference a tragedy can make. Becky was interviewed as well, and it kind of went like her statement in the police report. From the start of her final shift at the coffee shop, Stacy had been acting irrationally. Becky tried to settle her down by awarding her employee of the month. Instead, she cracked and walked off the job. Slippery William came out of nowhere and offered to replace Stacy. With no alternative, Becky accepted, and the decision turned out to be the biggest regret of her life. At the end of the shift, he offered to take her to a dark, secluded park. And when she said no, he left in anger. For a moment, the interview froze. Becky sat silently, unable to say what happened next. Then a few words snuck out of her mouth. That night, I'm sure Stacy was acting crazy because she knew what was coming. Nobody told her. She just knew. The documentary was an international hit and gave the coffee shop a dark reputation that attracted out-of-towners. One of them was a college student named Lillian, who kind of looked like Stacy. On a hot and humid July Tuesday, Lillian drove eight hours from Cincinnati to the mysterious bluffs, cramped inside her compact car. Yeah, the tight seat gave her a sore derriere, but the discomfort didn't distract her from the most important thing on her mind. Slippery Williams' table at the coffee shop. Lillian desired to sit at the infamous table and try to grasp the evil inside the killer while his eyes had followed Stacy's every move. Arriving inside the coffee shop around seven in the evening, Lillian stood proudly in front of the door, almost comfortably at home. Her heart felt for a place Slippery William had once been. And she didn't have a cold heart. She had a lost heart. 
Lillian fully understood the killer was due for justice. But if he could speak about his rage to a woman who truly cared about him, it would teach him empathy. And Lillian never asked herself if empathy can be learned by a mad dog killer. She was more interested in the bottom of a well after she looked into it and saw darkness. Becky was at the cash register when she noticed that Lillian was standing by the front door, in kind of a daze, unable to seat herself at a table. No worries, the coffee shop owner has been through this before. After straightening her apron, Becky hopped to a nearby wall and grabbed her original portrait of Slippery William. By the way, Becky was a talented artist, and she had a few paintings for sale. She approached Lillian, warmly introduced herself, and asked where she was from. Cincinnati, she said. I've heard nice things about Cincinnati, Becky said. She showed her the painting. I met him in person. Glancing over the killer's portrait, Lillian looked confused. Slippery William's face was clearly recognizable, but Becky's depiction of him, soft brush strokes of pastel colors, the serial killer came across as a Cabbage Patch Kid. He isn't real, Lillian said. His table is, Becky said. But it's taken, so you'll have to make a reservation. Can I reserve it for tonight? I can't guarantee tonight, sweetie. Give me a day's notice. The frustration tainted Lillian's face. All right, let me guess. Your Slippery William painting is on sale. I'll give you 50 bucks for it, and I get to sit at his table tonight. 50 bucks. The cuss words flooded into Becky's mouth, and she could barely keep it shut. I have prints for 25, she said. But the reservation is still for tomorrow, sweetie. Lillian stared straight into Becky's eyes. I drove eight hours to sit at this table. Eight hours I could have spent with James Frederick Jones. The name perked Becky's ears. He sounds familiar. Where have I heard of him? On TV, Lillian bragged. He's a close friend of mine that's serving four life sentences in an Iowa prison. I've been helping him find his conscience. How did you meet him? Ah, the winning smile on Lillian's face. When the table is empty, you can join me at it, and we'll chat about him. Okay, Becky said. Lillian tensely sipped a cappuccino while sitting near the killer's table. She could hardly keep her eyes off the young couple occupying it. She was astonished they were engaged in a light-hearted conversation where Slippery William had once sat. Equally strange was that they were blind to Lillian's excessive attention, which to her meant they knew exactly the dark place they were sitting and morbidly enjoyed being gawked at. They're Satanists, Lillian thought. I wouldn't be surprised if this cafe was full of them. It's why Slippery William came here. Stacy was a ritual sacrifice. Lillian scanned over the menu for evidence that something deeper and darker was going on. She found many items that were hard to pronounce, except for the delicacy at the bottom of the page. The Satan Sandwich. 
smoked beef and jalapeno sauce on rye. It doesn't make sense, Lillian thought. Reading Becky's menu is like learning a second language. Except for the Satan sandwich, it kind of sticks out. The young couple stood up and headed for the door. In knee-jerk fashion, Lillian made a play for the table, but she wasn't the only one in on the action. Becky rushed over to the table and asked Lillian if she'd like to order food. I suppose the Satan sandwich is real popular here, Lillian said. The customers who eat spicy food love it, Becky answered. Did Slippery William eat it? No, it wasn't on the menu back then. So he inspired it. Becky looked kind of miffed. The Satan sandwich is about smoked beef, jalapeno sauce, and rye bread. Nothing else. Now tell me how you met James Frederick Jones. Lillian's eyebrows sunk in annoyance. Giving up the information meant... Becky might one day compete against her for the attention of a serial killer. And she was already sitting at the Slippery William table. And it wasn't like Becky had to push back a reservation. So she wasn't at a loss. After waiting a few seconds too many, Becky let out a bit of a snarl. You've gone mute on me, she said. That's fine. I'm not in the mood to share my first-hand account of Slippery William. Lillian thought it over. All right, then. I met James on Pen Pals in Prison. It's a website where you make friends with convicts. But don't kid yourself. Not every convict is the perfect friend. Lillian explained that James wasn't her first pick. Before she discovered him, she'd played the field for other convicts. She corresponded with a car thief, a Ponzi schemer, and a gangster. They each kept her interested for a few letters, but something was missing. They were all with themselves, facing up to why they were in prison, and almost content with the containment. She needed a jailbird with a zing. A bad guy who was so torn up inside that he didn't know the difference between freedom and prison. That's when she discovered James Frederick Jones. To Lillian's delight, he was packed with disturbing thoughts to work through. After murdering four women, he wasn't saying much about mowing the lawn. During an October afternoon in 1998, James Frederick Jones, also known as the door-to-door killer, went on a murderous rampage in the suburbs of Iowa City. The killer posed as a vacuum cleaner salesman and solicited homes until he met women who invited him in for a free demonstration. Using the power cord from the vacuum cleaner, he strangled his victims to death, then coldly continued to the next house. Jones was caught after the husband of a would-be victim came home to find him pinning her to the living room floor. The husband jumped on Jones, and a struggle ensued, but his wife escaped and called 911. Lillian ordered a Turkish sun-dried tomato salad and slowly enjoyed it while Becky shared tidbits about Slippery William. The intrigue near overwhelmed Lillian. 
sitting at the killer's table and hearing that a man with gray skin and a tiny cow-like nose could be a charming waiter. Becky also mentioned that Stacy's apartment, the site of her murder, was now occupied by a bicycle repairman who claimed to have found blood splatter on a wall. Lillian asked if she could see the blood in person and perhaps take a selfie besides it. Becky laughed nervously, then said, You think he didn't wash it off? He has a life to live. Lillian sat quietly confused, wondering if Becky had laughed nervously because the blood splatter story was a lie. And if it was, then who was the liar? Becky or the bicycle repairman? But the story was true, and Becky was laughing nervously because taking a selfie besides blood splatter seemed awfully perverse. Then Becky mentioned she knew the killer's mother was named Josephine. Lillian grinned in disbelief, as the murderer was still at large, and little info was known about his personal life. But Becky swore that William had mentioned the detail during an intimate chat with him, though she was lying. Yes, Becky couldn't resist the temptation of having exclusive knowledge about the killer, even if it was fake. The truth was, she barely spoke with him, and everything he said was intentional. Boasting about his world-class coffee shop experience, offering to help after Stacy ran out, inviting Becky to a park in the middle of the night. Everything William said was a step towards his goal, to secure a victim. There was no loose talk about his mother, or anything personal at all. In the end, Lillian forced herself to believe the lie because it was an impressively rare claim that hadn't even been made in the Slippery William documentary. And if she told the lie to someone else, and they didn't believe it, Becky was to blame for making it up, so Lillian was in the clear. But nobody wants to be caught up in a lie, no matter who said it first. So Lillian pulled out her camera, and had the waitress take a picture of Becky and her at the table. She was sure the valuable photo would embolden the lie. When the conversation wound down, the cafe was near empty. Evening had turned to night, and the smell of coffee was growing thin. The two killer-obsessed ladies hugged each other as though they were sisters, and said goodbye. Taking Becky's advice, Lillian drove to a three-star motel just outside the mysterious bluffs. She grabbed a room and effortlessly dozed off. Early next morning, she washed up and hopped over to the cafeteria for a free breakfast. Then under a clear blue sky, she drove straight to Stacy's apartment. Without a moment to spare, she jumped out of her car and gazed at the four-story building. The fear and excitement inside her was fulfilling. She was on the old set of a famous horror movie, except the horror was real and burdened with endless sequels. She moved over to the entrance door and pondered what Slippery William had said to his victim when they spoke on the intercom. Now Lillian was searching for an alternate theory as to why Stacy let William in, rather than believe the popular story that he posed as the apologetic co-owner of Becky's Cafe. It didn't make sense that Stacy would come to the entrance door for a face-to-face -face apology and a tip jar. When someone walks off a job, they usually mean it. So why would they have anything to do with that job when they were most likely still angry and it was late at night? 
Lillian believed something deeper was going on, that Stacy couldn't resist a horrible fate on account of William's evil charm. Politely speaking through the intercom, he convinced his victim that her life was worth nothing and that he brought her tips for the evening to prove it. She went to the entrance door, accepting that whatever happened next couldn't be avoided. He needed no lies to mask his intentions. She was dead the moment she heard his voice. Now this theory offered no dignity to Stacy's death, making it seem suicidal. But Lillian wasn't focused on Stacy. Instead, she was passionate about William's dark side. And the darker it was, the more rewarding it would be to subdue it. What happened next speaks volumes for this desire. After Lillian devised her theory, a young guy strolled by on the sidewalk. She approached him and asked that he take her picture in front of the entrance door. He said yes, so she handed him her camera, then posed with both her hands giving the peace symbol. She thought if Slippery William ever saw the picture and recognized the location, he would understand that Lillian was on a mission to bring him peace of mind. Now back to the previous night for Becky's story. After Lillian was gone, Becky announced to her waitress that as soon as the last customer left, they'd drop everything and go home. The cash out and clean up would be taken care of the next morning. Then Becky hurried around the coffee shop, informing the customers they were closing a bit early. During her speed walk home, Becky's head was far away from the sleepy weeknight streets. It was in a rigid place of promise about the brave new world she was about to enter. She couldn't get her mind off pen pals in prison. The chance she'd discover a killer made her feel younger, yet filled her with worrisome questions. How would the correspondence go with the jailbird for life? Would he hound Becky for details about herself? all to manipulate her with them? Would he be jealous of her freedom and try to make her feel guilty about it? Would he say, in a roundabout way, that his victim had it coming? Would the killer blame his mother for raising him the wrong way? Arriving at her apartment around 10.30, Becky marched to her computer table and sat right down. Forget the nightly herbal tea and a half-asleep attempt to read a nutjob serial killer biography. The wired young woman was out for the real deal. Pen pals in prison. Becky booted up her computer, went online, and cruised to the website that was dogging her mind. She signed up for an account and nosed around, inspecting convict profiles like a choosy mother at a grocery store. It was a bit disappointing. The thing is, the mission statement of pen pals in prison was to focus on people, not their crimes. A convict's profile was made up of their first name, a photo of them, and a write-up of their hobbies and interests. There was no mention of conning or carjacking and how long they were serving. Becky had no idea who to write. She frowned and thought, 
Lillian must have written 40 letters before she hooked up with James Frederick Jones, the door-to-door killer. For comparison's sake, Becky hopped over to a site named Friends of Felons. The big difference was it revealed the full names of inmates, their convictions, and sentences. But after signing up and investigating murderers, Becky wasn't impressed either. She felt their pictures were smug. The killers were slightly grinning, or their eyes were filled with conceit. Little things that said they were stuck on themselves from adoration. Now, another person might see the same pictures and say the opposite about them. But Becky was convinced her gut was telling the truth. And the killers on Friends of Felons were pompous buffoons. Back to pen pals in prison. Becky revisited the inmate profiles and found the lack of information still made them a blur. But a comfortable blur. She had no idea who was worse than who, but neither did anyone else. The challenge was for her to figure out which inmates had been convicted of killing multiple victims. Becky came up with an interesting way to solve the problem. She compared photos of convicts with those of infamous serial killers and searched for similarities in their faces. For example, she sized up convicts besides a mugshot of Ted Bundy. Some convicts had his crazed eyes and others looked like they were about to froth at the mouth. It was a bit disappointing. In the end, Becky went to bed feeling confused. Not quite sure if there were more Ted Bundys in the world than she'd originally believed. The next night, after arriving home, Becky hopped on to her computer, went straight to pen pals in prison, and without any fuss, picked her top 10 convicts most likely to be a serial killer. She didn't care if some of them were losers in for jaywalking. The special 10 were each getting a letter, and that was that. Now 10 letters are a lot of writing, but Becky had to know if she could pick a killer. For a return address, she rented a P.O. box at the local drugstore. Then every night after work, she wrote a letter to a convict. Becky was almost writing a form letter. She kept her life vague, not mentioning the coffee shop, or anything that a released convict might exploit. She described herself as a petite, rosy young woman who would like to help prisoners live better lives. She said to each convict that she shared the same hobbies and interests as them. It was a lot of hobbies and interests, and a bit of a stretch. She wasn't into woodworking or bingo night, but sometimes you have to play a role to get to the truth. Which convict was the serial killer? The first response landed in Becky's hands almost a month later, on a hot and rainy Friday evening in late August. She wasn't expecting the letter. For two weeks, she'd been dropping by the P.O. box almost every day, and nothing came, so her optimism was tamed. She was no longer the fresh-faced adventurer plunking her key into the mailbox lock and turning it with the intrigue that a devil might be lurking inside. Finally, 
The day the weather was at its worst. A groggy, humid day that slowed the town down to a struggle. Becky received her wish. She got a letter. She nearly ran back to the coffee shop and grabbed the first empty table. The letter was kind of disappointing. She found the handwriting a bit sloppy and childish, but she let go of her inner calligrapher and made do. Adam Frost was his full name, and that he mentioned it in the first sentence of the letter suggested he had no interest in the policy of pen pals in prison, that convicts only be referred to by their first name. Frost included a lot about himself, too much for Becky's liking. The letter was a time-on-your-hands bio that numbed the eyes, but she did find a few things interesting. Frost was an ex-garbage truck driver who committed a few assaults, the most recent one on his former boss, which landed him in jail for a few years. The incident happened at the company picnic, and because of the damage, his ex-boss needed a nose job. Becky couldn't figure out if Frost had mentioned the nose job to brag about the damage he'd caused. If he was truly ashamed of himself, he wouldn't bring up the nose job, let alone that he caused the damage in front of other employees at a company picnic. Frost also could have mentioned the nose job to come to terms with his anger. He was manning up to the whole truth about his wrongdoing. Or did Frost simply mention the nose job to make Becky question why he included it? The intrigue was supposed to drive her to write him back. Becky stuck with this conclusion, and she wasn't falling for it. Bottom line, Adam Frost was a violent fool, but not a serial killer. The minor league offender didn't deserve another letter. By early September, Becky had received four more letters. The first three of them were from inmates she had no interest in. Like Adam Frost, they would eventually be released. To Becky, this made them little league criminals. Even if she never received another letter and she had no better options, they would eventually be free to meet her in person. She wanted a fish in an aquarium, an evil fish that reminded her of Slippery William, but without the fuss of a dead waitress in a documentary. Becky ripped their letters into tiny little pieces and tossed them in the recycling bin. The last letter Becky received was written by a convict who committed heinous crimes that got him a one-way ticket to the Auburn Correctional Facility in upstate New York. He was definitely her kind of thing. Well, not quite. She was bothered his crimes were personal. Stephen Wasnowski was serving serious time for killing his wife while she was staging a drug and alcohol intervention for him. Now Becky believes no one in the whole wide world deserves to be murdered. But if she had to pick which deaths were more comfortable to hear about, she'd go with the victims that didn't know their killer. Becky was irked that Wasnowski's wife was only trying to solve his problems. What a horrible price to pay for trying. Over the next week, Becky read Wasnowski's letter every night before bed. Besides his crimes, the content of the letter made her frown a little. He wrote about things like volunteering in the kitchen and doing push-ups in his cell, on and on. But Becky was unable to resist the sensation that she was in contact with a killer who might be attracted to her. 
And if he hadn't committed the crimes he did, she might be attracted to him as well. In her heart, she needed to know if she could have done better than his wife. Could she have kept him living the straight life? Each time Becky read the letter, the blanks swirled around in her head. Maybe his wife was too light on him, or ignoring his drug and alcohol problem. Maybe she was part of the problem, then saw the light, so he turned psychotic and killed her. After a busy Friday night at the cafe, Becky muscled up the nerve to search Woznowski on the internet. She only found one story about the murder, a 12-year-old article on a new site in Rochester, New York. Woznowski's actions were described as a rage killing with a steak knife. It was the first major crime committed by the 29-year-old man. But he was no fledgling criminal. He'd been in and out of jail for misdemeanors since who knows when. Robbery, drunk driving, possession of a controlled substance, on and on. Strangely, the article didn't mention that Woznowski's wife had staged an intervention. At first, Becky thought that Woznowski had kept it to himself, but then she thought otherwise. She wondered if he'd written about the intervention to appear as though he was suffering from withdrawal and wasn't in his right mind when he killed his wife. He might be using Becky for sympathy. She cruised to pen pals in prison and went straight to Woznowski's profile. The mugshot caught her attention. She recalled the first time she'd seen it, and yeah, he still looked crazy. But he was fresh crazy, full of lively details. The skin job haircut, the flat boxer's nose, the forehead that was stiffer than a steel plate. His eyes were soulless gray and packed with calculation. Right then, Becky wrote Woznowski back for the hell of it. What else was she supposed to do? Fall asleep reading her Charles Manson biography? The letter was short and frank. Dear Stephen, thank you for writing me. I'm sorry about your current situation. You obviously have been through a lot to be where you are. And I'm sure you don't appreciate that most people think you're just a killer. The good thing is, I'm not one of those people, and I believe you can still get a lot out of life. You have time to learn about yourself and why things turned out the way they did. Please write back and share some thoughts about yourself. How has prison changed you? Have you found a way to speak about the past? I will read your letter with an open mind, and the more you say, the more I will understand you. All the best. Becky. About a month later, almost the day the cool fall weather set in, Becky found Woznowski's reply in her P.O. box. She opened the envelope pronto, unevenly ripping off the top. Then her eyes ran over the first few lines. She frowned a little, then finished off the page and a half letter. There was no explanation as to why he killed his wife. It was the opposite of what Becky expected. To sum up the letter, Woznowski had found God in prison. He was reading the Bible every day and visiting the chapel at least a couple times a week. Now Becky was secular at heart. If someone asked her to describe the universe, 
She'd call it a calculator that pushes its own buttons. There were no internal forces like good and evil to send a man on his path. Things happen because fate produces the results of its own causes. Becky didn't believe a horned beast was whispering bad ideas into Wasnowski's ear. It was simple. His brain was criminally defective, and he didn't realize it, and nobody was able to help him realize it, and he killed his wife. That's it, Becky thought, by finding God. Wasnowski was sugarcoating his image with goodness. He'd been caught for the worst of crimes and couldn't hide from it in jail. To Becky, if good truly existed as an internal force, Wasnowski would have found God before he killed his wife. In the end, Becky didn't write Wasnowski back. She was concerned a murderer would try converting her to God. As the chilly northern fall set in, the business-minded young woman grew antsy about the P.O. box. It was an ugly expense. As the convicts who got back to her were all duds, she couldn't drive herself to write more letters. Even if she met the ideal murderer, she'd convinced herself she would grow tired of him. Jailbirds were tame compared to meeting Slippery William in person. One cold and wet Monday, a quiet day at the coffee shop, Becky slipped over to the drugstore to cancel the P.O. box. But before handing over the key, she checked the mail one last time. She found a letter from, hmm, Ronald Bigley, Lansing Correctional Facility, Kansas, USA. Now to date, every letter Becky received was from a convict she recalled writing to. But Ronald Bigley drew a blank. The name made Becky wonder if she'd written a letter late at night and forgotten about it. She squeezed the top corner of the envelope, ready to rip it open. Then a chilly feeling struck her about what was inside. She was totally positive she'd never heard of Ronald Bigley before. One of the convicts she'd written might have shared her letter with a cellmate. Nevertheless, she stuffed Ronald Bigley's letter in her jacket pocket then left for home without cancelling the P.O. box. Her plan? To find out who the mysterious convict was, and if she liked him, she'd read the letter. Arriving at her apartment, she went straight to the computer and searched pen pals in prison for Ronald Bigley. Hmm, no profile found. She cruised friends of felons, but didn't find Bigley either. She looked on a couple more sites and nada. Is Ronald Bigley a pseudonym used by another convict, she thought? Nah, he couldn't do that in jail. She retrieved the letter from her jacket and was about to crumple it up and throw it into the paper bin. She thought, I might as well read it. What's the difference if I don't? Ronald Bigley will think I did. She looked at the letter, which strangely was typed. Every other letter she received was written. 
Dear Becky, my name is Ronald Bigley, and I'm serving life without parole at the Lansing Correctional Facility in Kansas. If it weren't for a technicality in the case, the jury would have sent me to death row. The reason I'm here is that I'm paying a price for killing a man. But I'm innocent. It was a setup. I once was a member of an investment group that was focused on rocket technology. We had high stakes in a company named Star Destiny, which had developed the laser rocket. The engine was compact, cost little to operate, and could travel in space at three times the speed of any other rocket. It was bound to lead the next generation of space travel. Star Destiny planned to publicly announce the laser rocket, then IPO on the stock market, and let the share value shoot to the moon. I'd been given a spot on the board of directors, which seemed like a great position to hold, until the first meeting. The meeting went almost well. I had a great conversation with the CEO of the company and the chief developer of the laser rocket, whose name was Johnny Hiroto. At this meeting, I was offered a plate of fresh fruit. I tried the grapes first, and they tasted like grapes. Then I tried the watermelon, and I've been to meetings with fresh fruit before, but never had watermelon. It was an uplifting experience. Laser rocket, watermelon, it's all good. I bit into my slice, and it tasted like vinegar. Well, I was so shocked, the piece dropped out of my mouth. Little did I know, a week later, Johnny Hiroto was found dead, hanging upside down in his hotel room, with my DNA on him. The laser rocket prototype went missing, and here I am in the Lansing Correctional Facility. It was a watermelon setup. By the way, a friend smuggled this letter out for me, and Ronald Bigley isn't my real name. I can't give it to you right now, but soon. I have a few friends who are helping me get out of here. I can't say how I found you, Becky, but I know you're quiet about yourself and can use some extra cash. Big money, Becky. You need to meet me in Kansas for a two-week vacation. October 23rd, 10 p.m. at the Red Shoe Restaurant. It's on Highway 120, just south of Highland, Kansas. Bring a fast car. Write me back and mention your favorite flavor of ice cream to confirm you're coming. Love, Ronald. The letter was hard for Becky to digest. For starters, it sounded like a con job. A bad con job. Even a prank. It had to be written by a computer geek who was serving time for writing bad checks. He traded a pack of cigarettes for Becky's address, then wrote the biggest BS story possible so he could feel powerful and manipulative. Watermelon. Laser rocket. Yeah, right. And screw the fast car, pal. Becky wasn't about to rent a Dodge Charger and burn rubber to Kansas. She crumpled up the letter and tossed it in the paper bin. In fact, the next day, she dropped by the drugstore and canceled the P.O. box. It was a relief. She felt like she dropped a few pounds after a tofu and dandelion diet. Really? Becky thought Ronald Bigley was doing her a favor. He was so full of it that she had a change of heart about convicts in general 
She decided they weren't as interesting as the crimes they'd committed. Whatever they'd done, they were whispers of their past. The chaos they'd unleashed, extinguished by justice. And here's how she backed her new opinion. She recalled that in the letters the convicts sent her, they mentioned their crimes first. When a person starts a relationship, they bring up the things they think are most interesting about themselves. And convicts are no exception. They save the mundane for later. Living in a small cell. Regretful. And how they've changed for the better. Becky would rather read an arrest warrant at a Russian golf tournament. Thanks for listening to The Mysterious Bluffs.